We're talking revenue cycle management with Matt Seafeld. What is it? Why should you care? How can it help you as an employed physician, private practice physician, and much more on this episode of the Talk To Me Doc podcast. Before we get into the show, here's a quick message from Physician Financial Services, a business widely recognized in the physician community for disability insurance. Lawrence B. Keller, CFP, has been in the insurance and financial services industry since 1990. Unlike medicine, which has a standardized path that physicians must take to get the education, training, and experience requirements necessary to obtain board certification, the insurance and financial services industry does not. While he might not be a doctor's first call regarding their insurance needs, he is often their last. Find Larry at drpodcastnetwork.com slash Larry Keller or at the link in the description of this show. Welcome to the Talk To Me Doc podcast, where it's all about serving the early career physician. Let's talk about the unique issues that face us so we can create a better future for ourselves and those to come. And now your host, Dr. Andrew Tisser. Hey everybody, it's Andrew and welcome to the Talk To Me Doc podcast. If you're a returning listener, thank you so much and welcome back. If you're a new listener, you're in the right place because today, like on every episode, we're talking to the best guests from all around healthcare and beyond to discuss issues relating to the early career physician. Today, I have Matt Seafield. Matt is an executive vice president at Medevolve, responsible for all RCM operations, data science and workflow automation solutions, and business development. He brings over 20 years of management and consulting experience in the healthcare industry with extensive expertise in process improvement programs and technology across the entire revenue cycle. Matt began his career with Stockham and Associates Incorporated and worked for both PricewaterhouseCoopers LLP and Deloitte Consulting LLP in their healthcare and life sciences practice lines. In 2007, he developed a business intelligence solution and founded Interpoint Partners LLC where he served as chairman and CEO. In 2011, he sold his business to Streamline Health Solutions, where he then served as the chief strategist of Revenue Cycle and senior VP of Solutions Strategy until 2014. Immediately prior to joining MedEvolve, Matt ran global sales for Nant Health. Additionally, Matt is the founder of MyLifeLink, a virtual global addiction and recovery community and mobile application. He is also a board member and strategic advisor for a number of healthcare technology companies. He completed his undergraduate studies at the University University of California, San Diego, where he also achieved NCAA All-American honors three times during his collegiate track and field career. Well, let's get Matt onto the show. Matt Seafeld, welcome to the Talk To Me Doc podcast. Uh, Andrew, thanks for uh, having me. I'm, I'm grateful to be here. Yeah, likewise. So uh, I pre-recorded a little bit about you, but uh, if you could tell the audience kind of who you are, what you do, and what your role is in healthcare. Who I am, man, professionally, personally, every, everything in between. Whatever you want to share. <laughs> yeah. So on a personal note, I'm a father of two, two sons. Uh, I'm an avid coach of youth sports, including high school track. Uh, I also founded a global, global sober tribe of people who are engaging every day on a virtual platform to stay sober from physical addiction and maladaptive behavioral addiction. And I am the executive vice president at Metavolve Inc. You know, we are a privately owned practice management company, uh, and we also offer revenue cycle billing services to many of our surgical specialty clients. Awesome. Yeah. Well, I think we're going to talk about your little sober platform later. I think that's, that's <laughs> that could be a whole nother show. Uh, <laughs> right. 
Um, yeah. We're here to talk a little bit about billing and revenue cycle. And I think maybe half the listeners just had their eyes roll back and said, oh, man, we're going to talk about billing. That, that can't be interesting. But um, first thing I want to talk about is, you know, you see revenue cycle, RCM, et cetera. And I'm sure a lot of people have no idea what that is. So could you define what revenue cycle even means? Yeah, you know, revenue cycle is is what I consider that it's, it's it's your financial piece of your business, right? So these your you all as physicians, you deliver a service. That service has to at some point be scheduled, unless obviously you're an ER physician and such as yourself, and it's not scheduled. <laughs> uh, but most are scheduled. Uh, those patients have to be registered. You have to run different financial clearance activities, verifying benefits, eligibility, pre-cert requirements, referral requirements, and also the near and dear to my heart patient liability piece. So when you think of revenue cycle, it's making sure that you as a provider get paid what you're supposed to be paid on time. And, and that's still a huge misnomer in the industry. I've been doing revenue cycle my entire career, uh, straight out of undergrad. So I've been in this industry for 21 years, focused on consulting, advisory services, software development, and, and obviously uh, tech, technology deployment across all different uh, mediums of healthcare, from large physician groups to academic medical center settings, to IDNs to small physician practices. So I feel like I've seen most things when it comes to financial shortfalls. Fair enough. So, I mean, I think people, you know, there's, I think, a, f- a few different camps of physicians. So I think we don't get really any training uh, in residency when it comes to the financial side um, of how we get paid. And then people get out and take a job and uh, we'll say, well, hey, uh, that's kind of handled for me. The billers do it or uh, the, it's handled on the back end. You know, why do I care and why should I take time out of my day to learn about uh, revenue cycle? And, and what do you say to that? Yeah. Well, you know, if you, if you think about, you know, if you bill a dollar and you expect a dollar and you don't get a dollar back, maybe you get 90 cents on the dollar back, that 10 cents on the dollar becomes very accretive and material very quickly if it's a systemic problem. So you need to understand why are you not collecting what you expect to collect, right? So that's one thing, right? Because if you maximize, and that's called net collection rate. But if you maximize your net collection rate, then you're maximizing the money that you're bringing back into the, the clinic. The second component is labor, right? Is that you have a portion of cost allocated to you lightly, excuse me, allocated to you uh, to manage all revenue cycle operations, right? So if those labor folks are not efficient, then you're wasting money. So another part of this whole thing is making sure you understand the staffing and understand the effectiveness of staff that are responsible for doing all those things that I mentioned from financial scheduling to financial clearance to getting bills out the door and paid. So yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I, I think also when you see people, I know it's a big gripe a lot of the time, like, oh, I, I submitted X amount of dollars and I only got, you know, 50 cents back or whatever it was. Um, whereas uh, a lot of physicians feel like as long as they're billing a level five chart or a level four chart, then then that's that's the extent of their knowledge. Right. They need to learn what they need to put in their note to to bill the most for that patient. But that's, you know, that's a minuscule part of the process, right? Um, you you put in the right parts of your chart, whether it's getting downgraded or downcoded, and then collections is a whole separate op- operation. I mean, I think, I think docs don't understand that there are so many people so specialized within the revenue cycle, and it's not just billers and coders and insurance companies. 
That's right. Yeah. And, and of course, you know, you have to understand your payer mix. You know, you have to understand your contracted uh, contracts. You know, you have to understand uh, you have to have transparency. This was this is a big thing that seems to be a misnomer still 20 years later is that, you know, you can't wait till the end of the month to start understanding how you're doing for the prior month. Right. Big data analytics, data visualization that that's been around for decades in other industries. Yet we struggle with that in healthcare. You know, at Metavolve, we've actually focused the last two years building out a lot of transparency tools to be able to tell providers as well as administrators uh, how effective they are, you know, and, and where they're losing money. And more importantly, what they can do about that to try to recoup that money and prevent those errors from going forward. So a, bit, a prime example of that is your, is your first pass denials. Now, I bet if you were to ask any of your, your colleagues at the hospital, you know, what their top three denial codes are, they won't know, right? Um, they need to know. You know, and if you're in private practice, like, you know, we, we focus primarily in surgical specialty case. If you have a high COB eligibility denial, meaning that you're not verifying benefits and eligibility up front, <laughs> that's a problem. That's a lot of labor dependence on the back end to try to overturn those denials. No authorization, pre-cert, benefits exhausted. You know, when you get into medical necessity and you get into like coding and charge entry denials, that's going more back to how the physician is documenting uh, their case, how they're coding their case, right? So... So first pass denials to me is, a, is a, at a minimum something that providers need to understand. Um, you know, that's going to also be a direct reflection of how your account receivable is, right? So what's billed that's not collected yet that's sitting out there? And that's not only insurance, but nowadays with high deductible plans, it's the patient. You know, I'm, 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 I'm shocked that in this day and age that, that physicians continue to see patients. Again, in the ER city setting, it's, it's a little different. You're going you're gonna to treat the patient no matter what. And that's that's the hospital has to then recoup that money after the fact. But for non-emergency services, the elective stuff, why do you keep seeing patients that already owe you money? I just ran numbers this morning uh, in anticipation for us talking. Um, there's 17 million dollars in just our client base alone that's that's walking through the door in the next six months. That that's money that's already owed to these practices. Wow. Seventeen million dollars. So the question is one: Why didn't you estimate it and collect it up front? begin with and two why are you continuing to see patients who don't pay your bill so that has to be a huge focus for your listener especially the younger physicians that are coming out of med school and residency that guys 20 years ago it didn't matter if you collected from your patient it's five percent of your income came from the consumer now it's like 50 plus percent okay so you have to treat especially the first three or four months of the year when those deductibles have reset you got to treat that very seriously to be able to collect that because it's really hard to collect when that patient moves on, right? Life happens, utility bills, food, pandemic, right? All these other things can pop up as a higher priority than paying the uh, provider fees. Yeah. And, you know, I, I don't think, I think some docs in their minds make this an ethical dilemma where, where it really isn't, right? Like if, if a plumber came to your house and fixed your pipes, right? Um, and you needed to pay them uh, and you said you couldn't pay them, uh, well, first of all, he'd probably take you to small claims. Right. But second of all, um, he'd never come to your house again. Right. <laughs> um, right. it's, it, it's, it's a similar situation. You're providing a service, um, as, as dignified and as, you know, as righteous as you want to make it, um, your time and expertise was used and, uh, you deserve to get paid for it. Um, ethics notwithstanding. Yeah. So I think that's yeah. an important point. Yeah, no, it is. And, you know, I'll just leave it on this is, you know, I still hear the, you know, I'm in a small community. You know, I hear the, you know, we go to church on Sundays. And while that's all really a, a 
that's great, right? I mean, I understand that need is if you don't collect what you're owed, the chances of you staying in business and then supporting that community going forward starts to become risky. So it's not just, I mean, you know, collecting what you're owed is also to run a viable business, to offer new services and maybe invest in new technology and new types of procedures, right? You got to have margin to do that. And if you're not collecting what you're supposed to collect on time, right, and you're not collecting from the consumer this day and age, that margin, and you're not managing your labor costs effectively, uh, or, uh, along with other operating expenses, your margin becomes very, very narrow, um, and in some cases, zero, you know, and, and that's a tough place to be. Right. And think of all the patients you can't serve if you go out of business, right? Um, right. That's, that's the other point of it. So, I mean, I think some people will be listening and say, uh, well, hey, you know, I'm an employed doctor. I make X amount of dollars a year in salary. I don't get bonus for productivity or anything. This is what I make. Well, you know, this is my employer's problem. You know, why should I care? Right. That's a loaded question. <laughs> it is, right? Well, that's, what's the, that's what's fun about these, right? Uh, yeah, I know. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I hear you. I've got an identical twin brother who's an ER physician at a smaller, you know, regional system in New Hampshire. And, you know, he talks about, you know, well, I'm on the salary, you know, I, yep. I don't, if I do more RVUs this month, the last month, I don't see anything more in my paycheck. So, you know, you know, I, again, I go back to what's the financial health of the organization. Um, what are the different uh, devices and procedures and things that we could invest in if we had more margin. And I think that that would hopefully start to get people to say, Hey, it's just my employer, right? Um, it, I'll give you a prime example. I, I work for a small business. Medival is not a huge company. You know, we've been around for 20 plus years, but, you know, we may all be on salary, but we know if we don't, if we're not super efficient and cost savings and generating value for our clients, we start to lose more clients and et cetera, et cetera. Our margin's gone, which means there's, there's no future for the business. And the same would, would go. And in fact, look at how many critical access in small rural hospitals have gone out of business in the last five years. Yeah. Uh, the question is, were, if those doctors had had a better providers, uh, had a better incentive or they had uh, better transparency into the financial health, would they have changed behavior? You know, who knows? Right. That's that's the human condition there. But to, to just go on the adage that I'm an employed physician with no financial incentive to do better, that, that seems like a, a rough spot to live, in, in my opinion. Um I also would, would put it this way, too, is it uh, to, to the administrators who may not be on this podcast, but if you're a provider in an employed setting, shame on your administrators and, and corporate for not creating incentives for you to continue to deliver the best care with the best outcomes, uh, obviously, you know, tying to financial as well as clinical outcomes. So the, you've got to have incentives in there, not just for the providers. You have to have incentives for the, the labor force that's collecting that AR, that's getting claims financially cleared and all that, right? Here at Metavolve, I have financial incentives. I oversee all of our, our revenue cycle services as one of my many roles here. I have financial incentives in place because I can measure effectiveness, production and effectiveness of every unit of work done by every one of my employees. Hmm. And people can make a lot more money than what their hourly rate is because they're delivering results consistently for clients. So that's another, I guess, more of a idealistic approach. But those health systems, hospitals, need to make sure the incentives are aligned, are aligned correctly. Right. And I, mean, I think that's where a lot of them came from. Um, but certainly, you know, I think your organization doing better is always going to be better for you in general, whether it uh, goes into your paycheck or whether it goes into a new ultrasound machine for the department or whether, yep. um, 
you know, or whether you continue to have a job, right? I mean, I think the pandemic has shown us that we are not as, uh, you know, indispensable as we once thought. So um, I think do it, making the organization's bottom line better always makes you look better um, in yeah. general. So uh, be it as it may. And then, you know, I think it's as far as f- for, you know, I think for private practice owners, this is a no brainer, right? They, they need to understand this stuff or do they need to hire someone who does, right? Um now for our for our salaried physicians, are there any like low hanging fruit or like easy things they can do to like improve uh, the bottom line for the system, or do they really have to understand the inner working of how their particular uh, employer works to help improve things? So you know, are there are there easy things that Joe Schmo doctor can do to make things better? Yeah, I, mean, I, th- I think taking a, a interest in the financial health of their account receivable, right? So as a physician, you're generating charges every day. Those charges are coded. They're sent out to the insurance companies. They're processed by insurance. Then it's obviously sent on to the patient, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So, so I think taking an interest in the financial health, and, and if you're not within benchmark, and the benchmarks are pretty straightforward nowadays on AR, then asking the questions why, right? Is this because... I'm having more denials and are those denials related to things that I'm doing wrong by treating uh, the treatment of care or is this an administrative problem, right? So just taking an interest in data, I'm always surprised, you know, we have a lot of large groups, especially in like ortho space, ortho neuro spine. um, And I'm not picking on that, that vertical there. I mean, we got urology and and cardio and a lot of other ones as well, but I'm always impressed that when I ask a 50 provider group, uh, administrator, you know, how many doctors are really taking interest in analytics? It's usually less than 10%, sometimes less than mm-hmm. 5%, which always surprises me because, you know, in private practice, right? I mean, if you're making more margin, you're going to collect more. As an employed physician, the same thing, right? I mean, you may not have the financial incentives lined up, although the administrator should have that lined up for you guys. But what you need to understand is that why is my AR doing what it's doing? Why should I care about that? You know, how does that go back to how I'm treating treating the patient? Um, and so I think just showing interest there will we'll start to put pressure on finance and administration to realize that, hey, I have to become, I have to ele- elevate my game on transparency because my physicians are asking for it. And that moves the ecosystem of healthcare forward, right? That that's 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 innovation as far as I'm concerned, because I've been doing the same job for 20 years, thinking every year we're going to somehow start to really be cutting edge and every year I'm disappointed. So is this year the year? I don't know. Uh, probably not, you know, next year, maybe, you know, but how much pain, I always say this to doctors, how much more pain are you willing to take before you start to take an interest in the financial position of the organization? You know, you may still be making enough money today to pay the bills and do the things that you want in your life, but what would you do with more money? You know, what would the practice do with more money? What would the ER do with more money? Right. And, and, you know, you think of the and I'm not a physician. I obviously have a twin who is watched him go through med school residency, watched him take the Hippocratic oath and all that is that I would hope that that as a provider, people want to make sure they're serving patients better tomorrow than they are today. And a lot of that is being able to invest in technology. Right. I mean, how many med device reps are in your ER every day trying to sell you on the next thing? Right. So but you got to have money to do that. You know, um, and, and doctors can't be complacent. And, and I'm, I'm speaking really to the, the new doctors, right? You know, maybe five years out of residency or so forth to say, hey, you have a huge future in front of you. You may not be employed the rest of your career. You may choose to break off and do uh, 
do a private practice. And then five years after that, you may sell to a private equity firm where guess what? Your multiple on your exit price is going to be 10 to 15 times EBITDA. So if your margin's not maximized, <laughs> your exit price isn't going to be maximized. So that's a whole nother thing that's going on in the industry right now is private practices being bought up by private equity firms. And I'm always shaking my head because I'm like, man, if you had an efficient revenue cycle, your, your exit price would have been probably 10, 20 percent higher or more, you know. So but a lot of practices, they don't know. They don't know their health. You know, a lot of providers, they don't know their financial health and, and they haven't been asking about it consistently. enough. And I'd like to see that changed. I think that could be, be huge for the industry and it certainly could be huge for the patients. Yeah, I mean, I agree completely. It's it's silly almost to put it that way, right? I mean, and for those who didn't understand some of the terminology you said, basically, if your if your practice is making more money and you go to sell it, then you're going to make more money when you sell it, right? It, to right. make it to make it simple, yeah. um, and margin, uh, yeah, exactly margin. right. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, I mean, that seems to be a, a no brainer, but. Well, people a lot of times will say, well, we're paying the bills, we're paying the staff, we're taking our salaries, we're doing okay. But maybe either maybe you're not, um, or maybe you could be doing a lot better. And I think it's also an important conversation to have for physicians looking at partnership tracks and partnerships, right? Because um, well, the partners are making X amount of money and the practice is doing okay. But really, uh, what do the financials look like in, in the, you know, behind the scenes? Uh, when it comes to becoming a partner. Um, and yeah, the, yeah. the whole private equity buy-up, I mean, that's, a, again, a whole different podcast episode, but um, I don't right. think that's changing. You know, I don't think that's... No, it's there. definitely not changing. No, and I mean, and, and what they're doing now is they're they're buying practices and then they're trying to centralize business office operations and, and even the financial clearance, which is the right approach, by the way. But, but, you know, again, now you're getting into... Do you have the right technology? Do you have the workflow automation in place? Do you have the transparency solutions to maximize revenue? You know, and, and all of those things that, that go into uh, go into play. So I don't I don't see that that trend uh, leaving anytime soon. The um, for for those physicians that are either starting a practice or perhaps creating a, a you know two or three physician practice um, and and want to learn about revenue cycle at least at its simplest terms and and perhaps how to do how to do better. Is there like a particular resource you point them to? Because, I mean, your company does this for sure, but is there, is right. there something, is there somewhere to learn the basics for people that are just getting started? Yeah. I mean, I mean, there's certainly stuff online. I mean, revenue cycle 101, you know, I came from a lot of the, the consulting firms where we would put out white papers and thought leadership. I was with PricewaterhouseCoopers and Deloitte and Touche. I mean, I mean, I know ENY does it. I know Huron Healthcare does it. So there's a lot of uh, big advisory firms that try mm-hmm. to uh, simplify revenue cycle management, you know, uh, from a provider perspective, we've had to, uh, help, uh, start a lot of private practice groups. We've had clients a lot over the last few years since I've been here, come to us and say, Hey, I want to, want to create a gastroenterology group. I want, I've got five providers that are ready to go today. What do I need to do? Right. You know? And so we end up in some sense becoming more than just the technology or service partner. We, we become an advisor to how they, they need to set that up. Um, but I think that, you know, again, when you think of the, the terminology or you think of what, what a provider can be asking, it really comes down to the, the adage of, you know, what am I writing off that's not a contractual? <laughs> you know? And could I have gotten that money? Right, that's, that's, a, that's, that's fun. What's my AR? Well, yeah, how much if I build for the service and it's not paid for or partially paid, why? You know, and am I outside of benchmark, you know? 
And then it's the, the, this whole thing around uh, patient liability and bad debt expense, right? Which again, you know, depending on the organization, it, it varies. You know, if you're in surgical specialties, you're probably not seeing a lot of true cell pay. If you're a, a hospital with an emergency room department, you're probably having a higher bad debt threshold than your private practice. So, but bad debt is something that has to be looked at. It's really expensive. And when you start to send these claims to collection agencies, you know, those collection agencies are going to charge you 20, 30% or more to collect that money. So what could you have done to get it while it's still in house? And more importantly, before the service or at the last line of defense at the time of service. So, you know, so it doesn't, I guess my point is it doesn't have to be, uh, uh, you know, taking a course in med school to figure out the financial things you need to be asking questions about. And, you know, and of course, first pass analysis, as I mentioned at the top of the podcast, is, is always a good place to start. Um, one thing I'll just point out to your physicians is when they start asking these questions, their administrators may not know the answers. That's a problem. Okay, That is a problem, whether you're a employed physician or you're in private practice. Um, you have to have confidence that your administrative team who gets paid a lot of money knows how to run your revenue cycle, right? And they, they're looking at these, these metrics that I'm talking about on a consistent basis to make sure that that revenue cycle is top performing. So I would definitely, every chance I get on a podcast or out speaking at a conference, and I know I have physicians as your as audience members, I want to get that out there, that you have a right to demand excellence from your administrative team. CEO all the way down to the frontline staff. That's the right for you because you deliver the service, which gets paid, which is what pays everyone's bills, right? And salaries. So you have that right. Um, anyways, get on my, my soapbox, I guess, for a quick 30 seconds or longer. Just to, well, I think even, and even more importantly, for those, for those people working for large, you know, practices owned by private equity, a lot of times those numbers are not available to you without some digging. So, um, yeah, ask for them. <laughs> yeah, you got to ask for them, you know, and it's, it's, I'm always fascinated by the, um, well, yeah, we usually get reports, uh, second week of the month, the prior month. I'm like, yeah, okay, that was cool, like in the 90s, but I'm like, that, that's not going to work now. I, like, you got to know in near real time, especially as a, as a provider, um, or as, as close to real time, how, how you're performing. And how the organization is performing and so and, and this stuff's available i mean we spent two years now focused on ai workflow automation and transparency solutions on analytics and, and predictive analytics and machine learning and all those those cheesy buzzwords because we had to to use these tools to save our revenue cycle service department our margin was gone in april of 2018 now we run a really healthy margin and we're doing it through technology and we're doing it through holding uh, our labor folks uh, accountable for the work they do and the outcomes they get. We're also holding our clients accountable for the work they're doing and the outcomes they're getting, right? And, and so it, it becomes, creates a much more objective conversation rather than emotional. You know, I always say, you know, let's base our decisions on facts, not feelings. You know, too many healthcare organizations still make decisions on how they feel. Well, I think this is what's happening, so let's do this. Well, no, that may not be what's happening. Like, you know, do you have the data that's consistent, structured, and objective to say, no, this is actually what's happening, and these are the three things I'm doing about it, and then we're going to measure the the impact of that process change um, here over the next four to eight weeks to make sure it's working. Yeah, that's great. Well, before we run out of time, Matt, I want to talk to you a little bit about your sober community that you created. So what, what was the impetus for that? 
Well, getting sober was one for me. You know, oh, I spent, uh, you know, they always say the best idea is when, you know, is when you're actually a customer of your own, own stuff. So I, I spent many years battling uh, uh, physical addiction, um, you know, for, for lots of different reasons, you know, and, and I, I always was, was what appealed to me the most was, was why, why can I go on cars.com and find the ideal car? Or I can go on a match.com and allegedly find my, my ideal spouse or mate, but I can't go find people that suffer from physical or emotional or behavioral addiction that I can relate to beyond the addiction. You know, I'm Matt Seafeld. I'm a entrepreneur. I'm a business executive. I'm a father. I'm a coach. Uh, I also have hypertension. You know, I also um, like to surf. Right. You know, and so you start to build a, 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 personalized story in a structured way. And then I can go find people on this platform now that I can relate to and start this journey with. So for me, it was, it was really out of necessity. I checked out of uh, inpatient rehab quite a few years ago and was handed a piece of paper with a guy's name on it. And the lady said, Hey, I give him a call. He's an alumni. And the first thing I asked her was, is he sober? And she said, I don't know. I hope so. And I said, well, what does he do for a living? She goes, I don't know. And I said, well, does he have any hobbies? I live in San Diego. Does he have any hobbies? Can I go mountain bike with the guy or fish or surf? She goes, those would all be really good things. To know. And hence our relapse rate in the first year is 95%, right? I mean, 95% of the people that are ready, think they're ready to get sober, fail in their first year. And a lot of that's human connection. And with COVID, it perpetuated that, right? We were all, all of our meetings or our 12-step meetings, everything was shut down overnight. And so you had people trying to find human connection. They could. And so we've grown. Uh, we're thousands and thousands of people. We have folks signing up from all over the world. And we have, I mean, we've got lots of things we're doing on the platform around emotional recovery, emotional addiction, uh, you know, you know, and then obviously the peer support. We drive a lot of podcasts and content. Uh, but the most important part of the app is tracking the things that you do every day to stay in recovery and to serve others. You know, and, and that's really where, where, where I see the, the, the value is, you know, are you doing the things that you've been advised to do by people who've been successful in staying sober? So it's a passion project of mine. Um, I'll spend the balance of my, my life working in this field in some form or fashion. Um, I, as, as always, I always wish I had more time for it right now. But, you know, having a pretty full plate with all the other things, you know, I'm, I'm letting it kind of run organically out there. Uh, but it's been really exciting to see so many success stories um, and to just see people really inspiring each other every day, you know, in a virtual uh, sense to, to be better uh, than they were yesterday. That's amazing. Is this a, is this a like a paid membership or a free service or how does it work? Free. Um, I, I still write the checks. I, I, I'm not taking any investment or anything like that. I make my own decisions. You know, uh, I mean, we together, the tribe, I call them the tribe, make our own decisions. It's a free app, Google, Apple. My life link is the name of it. And uh, we have people that sign up for all different reasons. You know, um, I'm seeing a large uptick in the behavioral addictions for sure. Social media, you know, um, being one of the, the drivers and, and how that's impacting people's lives because, you know, we, we, we sometimes think of addiction as just the alcoholic or the drug addict, but addiction is uh, when obsession becomes normal, that's addiction. So when we as, as humans obsess about something uh, and that obsession becomes just status quo, we're now addicted you know, and that could be exercise, it could be feeling uh, unworthy, right? It could be addicted to anxiety. You know, there's lots of lots of things that impact our lives. And so I, I always tell people there's a little something for everybody on this platform. Um, and 
and and it's just fun to, to see it grow. And and it's such a need. You know, my heart breaks every time I read an article about the uh, rising overdoses again, uh, the suicide, especially in the younger folks. You know, people who haven't had a chance to get their lives going. And I want yeah. them to know that hey, there is a community out there of warriors who figured it out. Come join us and learn from them and and start to to build an extraordinary life. You know, a life that that you never thought was possible before because it is possible. We just have to get you sober first. Wow, that's great. I'm so, sure. You know, I'm sure there's plenty of physicians listening that that need those services as well. You know, just because uh, they're high performing doctors doesn't mean they don't suffer from yeah. uh, some from addiction. So that's We've that's heard. wonderful. That's right. Yeah, no, there's, I always tell folks there's, 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 there's no bias, you know, um, I have just as many attorneys and physicians as I do folks who've never held a job, you know, and, and it's, um, it's just the reality. And as you, as you broaden the definition of, of addiction beyond physical into behavioral and emotional, then we're all addicts in some form or fashion. So it's just, you know, how is your life today? And do you have the aspiration to make make it better. And if so, come join a community of people who that's their, their purpose, right? Is, is to lift each other up. And in turn, we get lifted up. Great. Well, I'll certainly uh, leave uh, links in the show notes to that, to um, my life link as well. So besides Medevolve and my life link and uh, coaching and take care of your kids, uh, <laughs> do you have any time to do things for fun? I Yeah. You know, I still find time. Uh, you know, I was a an athlete all my life, all through college. And so as a result of that, I have some, some nice injuries that <laughs> orthopedic related in some cases. So I've, I've picked up swimming the last couple of years, which I think is funny because people look at me now, they go, Oh, you must've been a college swimmer. And I'm like, <laughs> I was not a college swimmer, but thanks for the compliment, I guess. But that's been a great resource for me. It's meditative. Um, it's also, you know, keeps me, keeps me in shape. Um, I'm an avid surfer. I've been surfing my entire life. I grew up on the West Coast here in California. I grew up in Northern California. I live in San Diego now with my family um, and been here uh, for many, many years. So, yeah, that's always a, a part of, of it. And then really, you know, it is. It, it, I, I know we talked about coaching, but that that seems to be, especially in recovery, that's, that's such a huge component of my life now is, is giving back to the youth and making sure that I can help be some help shape them in some way about the things they're going to encounter in life and how sports can really help uh, learn how to overcome things, you know, and, and it's been fun to watch whether they're seven year olds or they're 17 year olds, right. It's, it's all the, the same. Um, and it's, it's fun to, to see their, their performance. Yeah. Great. Perfect. Um, have you read any good books lately? Yeah, I saw your question. So I have, so I, I read, um, you uh, can't hurt me by David Goggins. Well, actually, I listened to it um, on, a, on a road trip, and I don't know. Have you have you read anything about David Goggins? He's the no, no. Yeah, he's an interesting guy. Uh, he uh, I won't spoil the story, but you know the the gist of it is is that we limit ourselves uh, mentally in what we think we are able to accomplish, and when you break that mental barrier down and realize that anything is possible but you have to have the grit and the ter- determination and the work ethic to get there. Life becomes much, uh, uh, much better, right? Because, because we're not, we're no longer limited in, in what we were told we were supposed to be or what we we're supposed to do. And so it's about, he's intense, uh, or, you know, Navy SEAL and, you know, military guy, he does all the ultra marathons and, you know, hundred mile races. And so he's, you know, thousands of pushups a day and sit-ups and everything. So he, he's an intense guy, but but the book is really, really good. Um, the other book that I always like plug is Built to Last, even though it's an older book. But 
you know, the built to last concept is something that I've applied to healthcare, meaning that, you know, healthcare has evolved so much over the last 20 years. But if we don't start to continue, if we don't continuously evolve uh, what we deliver to the healthcare market as a company, so like, for example, here in Metabol, or for example, how we treat addiction, um, you're never going to maximize uh, what you expect in terms of return uh, on investment. And so, so don't get stuck in your ways. Let's not be Kodak, you know, let's, let's reinvent ourselves when we need to reinvent. And that could be personally or professionally, but, but don't settle on the concept that, well, things are just the way they're supposed to be because things happen. I mean, look at COVID. Nobody expected that. And, and look at how restaurants have had to evolve in the last you know 18 months and movie theaters and theme parks and airplanes. And, you know, people had to quickly adapt to new challenges and uh, to stay relevant and stay in business. And so that's really the, the premise of that book. As well. right. But I do yeah. like reading. Built to last, I've read, but can't hurt me. I'll, I will check out. Can't so hurt me. Be... Listen to it or read it. Yeah, it's a, it's a very good, very good book uh, for awesome. sure. He, he's um, an intense guy. <laughs> um, do you have a, like just a parting piece of advice for early career physicians? You've already given us a boatload of advice on the show, but maybe just one yeah. parting sentence. Uh, you know, you, you you spend a lot of money on your medical school. You spend even more money on, on, on uh, supporting yourself through residency. And I know those incomes are not stellar based on my twin brother. Um, you have the right to to take a, a ownership and the financial health of the services you deliver. Um, don't just look at yourself as a service provider, but look at yourself as a service provider who also... Uh, takes an interest in the financial outcome of the service we provide, right? You provide, and, and that'll help us continue to, to innovate uh, and hold people accountable and, and make sure that we're delivering the best service uh, with the best outcome, financial and clinical. So I, I really, you know, the would say, you know, please, you know, start asking questions about the financial health, you know, start challenging the financial health. You have that right. You've earned that right, you know, and, and, and also don't settle. You know, if, if your organization and your employed physician and you feel like your compensation models out of whack or there's no incentive to deliver, then then raise that up. You, know, you get enough of your providers together to raise that up to administration. Administration won't have a choice but to, to listen. So don't don't, yeah. get, don't get settled. Don't settle for anything. You guys have worked super hard in med school, intern, residency, fellowship, everything in between. You've spent a lot of money on your education. We as consumers of healthcare are grateful for all of that. But we want to see you around too, right? We want to see you in business and see you thriving. Perfect. Yeah, that's great advice. And if uh, people enjoyed what they uh, heard here or want to check out Medevolve, where can they find you? Yeah. So, I, you know, this day and age, you know, you can find me on, on LinkedIn. Um, I definitely am an avid user of that and staying connected with folks. I'm always open to having conversations with really anybody. Um, it's, you know, and then of course, Medevolve, uh, we can drop, I'm sure, the URL in there. But, you know, the metavault.com. And then on the My Lifelink side, yeah, I mean, it's My Lifelink uh, app.com and Apple or Google Play. And check us out if, if you know of somebody who's suffering or you and yourself are suffering. It's totally anonymous uh, if you choose to be. So it's a safe place. Great. Well, thank you again for coming on the show and providing all the value you have uh, to our listeners on, on both fronts here from the revenue cycle side and from the lifelink side. And um, I really enjoyed this conversation.
Yeah, I appreciate the time and, and, and the interest. So, and if there's ever an opportunity to, to come back on and talk about something different, I'm sure you and I could come up with a few more topics. So, yeah, I think we could have a series. Yeah. I think. Yeah, yeah, we could. Yeah, no, I love it. Yeah, yeah. I just this is well, you can tell I'm passionate about this. Yeah, I've spent 20 years plus in this this business. So I feel like I I, I I've earned the right to to help people, and and I, I've I've seen a lot of different things go right and a lot of different things go wrong. So. Um, would always uh, look forward to coming back on if there's an opportunity. So thanks again. I appreciate it. All right, mate. Matt, take care now. All right. You too. What a great show. Before we end, don't forget to reach out to Larry Keller of Physician Financial Services for your disability insurance needs. He's been around for a while in many physician communities, helping them with the coverage they need. Find Larry at drpodcastnetwork.com slash Larry Keller. What a fantastic episode with Matt Seafeld. I really learned a lot. It was a great discussion about revenue cycle management, billing and coding, accounts receivable, and why you should care whether you are an employed physician, private practice physician, or some other arrangement. It was also really interesting to hear about his project in regards to addiction. What a cool, great, amazing, needed resource. You can find the links to everything in the show on the show notes. The other thing I'd like you to do after listening is visit my website at andrewtisserdo.com. That's andrew, T-I-S-S-E-R-D-O.com. And click on the free video series. In this series, I discuss my pathway from burnout to career satisfaction, which really started in medical school. It's completely free and gives you actionable tips along the way. Until next time, everybody, keep talking. All opinions expressed by the guest in this episode are solely the guest's opinions and do not reflect the opinions of Andrew Tisser Dio, TalkToMe.LC, or any affiliates thereof. The guest's opinions are based upon information he or she considers reliable, but Andrew Tisser Dio, TalkToMe.LC, nor any affiliates thereof warrant its completeness or accuracy. The guest, Andrew Tisser Dio, TalkToMe.LC, or any affiliates thereof are not under any obligation to update or correct any information provided in this episode. The guest statements and opinions are subject to change without notice.